take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're beginning with verse 1. Thank you. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses of this chapter here this morning for our text. I think it could be pretty well a given that if you were to talk with the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite of of Jesus' day, well, they would tell you that all is well. All is in order. Their way of thinking is right. And their way of light is life is all said. And it's as it should be. But the danger for them, which obviously we can see, and of course we're, we're looking back and reading, and we know the end of the stories, we know how the Gospels end, we know all that's going to take place here in the encounters that the Pharisees have with Jesus. But the danger that we see for the Pharisees is that they were no longer suspicious of themselves. They no longer questioned their own judgment. They no longer examined their own hearts. And so they had found their routine and they were set quite well into that routine. And you might even call it a a rut into their religious rut of this is what we do. This is how we do it. And it doesn't need to be changed. It doesn't need to be disturbed. Please do not attempt to do so. All is well. So we're going to look at some of those religious ruts this morning and examine them and see if there might be any application in those for us as well. So as we read here in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. It happened that when he, Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread... They were watching him closely, and there was in front of him a man suffering from dropsy, and dropsy is a disease that, where there is the, the, the accumulating of the fluids in the, in the body. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him. And sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by them. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes... He may say to you, friend, move up higher. 
then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Recently I had the occasion in my home to, rec- to correct one of our children. Actually it happens quite often <laughs> in our home. And in the process of correction I just simply asked the question... Is there any virtue in what you did? And it was one of those occasions where I got a very straightforward, very honest response from this child that I corrected. And the response was this. What does that mean? Very honest. What does it mean? Is there any virtue in what I have done? And actually, it brought back even to my own thinking in a a childhood Bible that I had back years ago. I think I still actually have that Bible somewhere at home. It's an old King James Version Bible. And you know how many of the Bibles off the top of the page they'll have on one side the heading of things that you might find on that page. And I remember... On my Bible as a child, it may, maybe you have one like that here, I don't know. But through the book of Proverbs, from about chapter 9 and following, the heading at the top of several pages was something like, Moral Virtues and Their Contrary Vices. And I remember thinking, then, as a child, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and... We don't use the word virtue very often, but it is a good word. In fact, I took out my dictionary this week and just looked up the word virtue and to see what I might find in Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. And it had things like this, virtue as a morality, a particular moral excellence, a beneficial quality or power of a thing. A commendable quality or a trait. So in summary, when we think of virtue, virtue is a good thing, isn't it? It's something that's to be pursued. And so when we speak of virtues, and the question that I asked on that occasion was, was there any virtue in what you have done? And it usually, and in that case it did. It usually has to do with how a sibling has been treated Now looking, is there any goodness? Is there any kindness? Anything that's commendable in what has been done? Well, I think if you were to ask the Pharisees of Jesus' day regarding the virtue of so many of their actions, 
If you were to get an honest answer from them, it would probably be something like this. What does that mean? Because even as you read the account of our, our text today, it seems like the idea of something that is virtuous, something that is commendable, it just never crosses their mind. It's not on the radar screen. And so, we're going to look at this text, and I've entitled my message this morning, Virtues of Genuine Godliness. Because the Pharisees were those who would have claimed godliness, who would have claimed to be the people of God, and walked in obedience to God, and walking in fellowship with God. But we find that for them, there was no such thing as a question of virtue. It was more a religion of tradition and their own culture that they had become accustomed to. And so they saw no contradiction between God's way and their own way, even though they were in fact poles apart. So Jesus does, in our text here today, commend and even command certain virtues. And we're going to consider those virtues because they do come at the commendation and at the command of Jesus Himself to us. Things that we should pursue in our own lives today. And the first thing, and just the simplicity of what we look at in our text here, the first thing we see here is the virtue of helping hands. The virtue of helping hands. In verses 1 through 6 in particular, we focused upon this. We are reminded here, the text here reminds us that it's another Sabbath. And we've had these encounters before, haven't we? When Jesus is somewhere on the Sabbath and there are Pharisees and there are lawyers there on this Sabbath, there is someone who is there in need. Here we are, another Sabbath, another healing, so hence another conflict and another controversy. Back in Luke chapter 6, we saw the account of the man who had the withered hand. We saw back in chapter 13, this woman who had been bound, and both of these healed on the Sabbath. This time, we see that the Pharisees do something a little bit different. We see, first of all, in verse 1, that they are watching very closely. They're watching Him. But then you get down in verse 4, when Jesus has asked them a direct question in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They're not going to answer. They're silent. They're unwilling to answer. Now, quite honestly, by this point, the Pharisees, they knew their own position well, didn't they? In their mind, you don't heal on the Sabbath because that's violating the Sabbath command of pro prohibiting work. You don't do it. You do it on another day. You don't heal on the Sabbath day. But they also knew Jesus' stance, didn't they? After all, they'd been here before. They had encountered this before. They'd had this discussion with Jesus. At least two previous occasions on the Sabbath, when it happened, they knew His position because He, in fact, by His practice, and even by His very words, said that it was indeed lawful to heal on the Sabbath. In fact, that it was very, it was quite appropriate 
that one be healed on the Sabbath day. So perhaps here in this encounter, when the Pharisees are remaining silent, maybe they're just reluctant to go again publicly head to head against Jesus. I mean, after all, you can imagine something of the reasoning process. Guys, every time we get into this situation, every time we have this encounter, this discussion about this topic, we come out looking like the idiots. We come out looking like the bad guys. Let's just keep our mouth shut and see what happens. And then they're thinking as well, getting more to bring an accusation against Jesus. So they they approach this encounter with a different different tact. Quietness, silence. But their silence is also a testimony against them, isn't it? Their silence is a reminder to us that they refuse to affirm his deeds as being right. See, there is no neutrality to Christ, is there? And by their silence, they're refusing to to affirm that Jesus is, in fact, walking in compliance with the law of God. Refusing to acknowledge that, in fact, Jesus is God. And so by their silence, by their silence, their refusal to answer this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They align themselves still against Christ, against the God whom they profess to serve. So Jesus, who identifies himself back in Luke chapter 6, verse 4, he identifies himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he says. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, living in submission to all of God's law, including the Sabbath law, living in, in perfect obedience to God's law, clearly implies by his actions, by the healings that he does on the Sabbath day, that to do so, to heal on the Sabbath, is in fact lawful. What's the basis of that? In this encounter here, it's consistent with the spirit of God's law and even their own practice. Look in verse 5. He said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? In other words, Jesus is saying, what I am doing by helping this man is consistent with what any one of you would do. If your son were to fall into a well and needed help, you would immediately, regardless of the day, it makes no difference, that it's the Sabbath day, you'd immediately go to rescue him. You wouldn't stop and think, well, this is the Sabbath day. Should I do this? This perhaps he'll live fine until tomorrow. <laughs> or your ox. You'd even do it for the brute beast. Would you not? Falls into the well on the Sabbath day, you would immediately go and pull him out. And for what reason? How would they justify that? Because they recognize that the seriousness of a potential loss or a potential need outweighs the command against work and that the command against work was not addressing this type of thing. That there's a place to do things that need to be done and it's perfectly consistent with all of God's law, including God's law regarding the Sabbath. And Jesus had said before that the Sabbath was given to be of help to man. 
The Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. You're not a slave to a day. God has given you this gift. It is a gift to us. God gives the Sabbath to help us, not to enslave us to a dead code of conduct. That's not what the Sabbath is about. And that's what it become for the Pharisees. It's become a list of rules, a list of things that you do and you do not do on the Sabbath. Mostly things you do not do. You don't do these things. But it was nothing more than a, a dead code of conduct. And so, by doing so, they violated the higher law. The higher law is this. The law of love. The law of love. That all of God's commands... All of God's commands are rooted in love. And they are to be expressed in love. Love first and foremost for God Himself. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. But as Jesus said, but also to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not one against the other. It's not one or the other. It is always, always both. You cannot separate them. And you cannot love God and hate or fail to love your fellow man. And so the law of love, love for God, loving your neighbor, these two always to be exercised. And it's as you look at this encounter here with Jesus, it's sad, is it not? It's sad that this type of an encounter even takes place. To believe, as the Pharisees did, that love for God and love for the law of God causes someone to close their heart of compassion to their fellow man. That ought to be a warning sign to us. When we think that out of my duty of love to God, I can close my heart to those in need around me. It's never the, it's never the case. It is always love for God, love for men, love for God, love for my brother. Always both, never one in opposition to the other. So Jesus simply sees a man here in need. So he extends his hands to help, to deliver him. Because certainly it was within the, the, the spirit of God's law to show compassion. To be helping hands. What a virtue that is. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's simple enough that any of our children here can get that. To have helping hands. Hands that look for ways to help. And we need to be aware. We need to be aware of the idea that we can separate love for God from love for others. John reminds us in John chapter 4 verse 20. That the one who says I love God and he hates his brother. In no uncertain terms he is a liar. That's John's take. We don't even use that word in my house. But John says if you say you love God and you hate your brother. Or you fail to love your brother is really the idea that's used there. You fail to demonstrate love and compassion to your brother. You are a liar. Pretty straightforward, is it not? See, Christianity 
which the essence truly is a love for God. That's the grace that God puts to our hearts. It is not lived in a vacuum. Christianity is lived in a world with real people, with people who have needs, people who need helping hands. God has called us to live in that world and God has called for us to extend our hands to help those whom we can. We cannot live godly lives with our walls up and how so, so often we build those walls and disguise them as safeguards, do we not? We cannot live godly lives with our walls up which close our hearts and our eyes to the world in which we live. That's not Christianity. Christianity recognizes that I have received God's help. I have received God's mercy, God's grace, and God's kindness. And I cannot help but extend that to the world in which I live. So that someone else may taste and see that the Lord is good. They may experience the kindness of God. They may experience the help of God. That's the world in which we live. And God's called us to live in that world. He hasn't called us to pull ourselves out of it. You understand to some degree that we do not participate in the sins of the world. Of course we do not. And in that sense we do withdraw from the world. But insofar as we are engaged with the world, that we're rubbing people shoulder to shoulder in the workplace, and the places that we may go, it's an opportunity to be of help. It's a virtue that Christ commends here that we be those who have helping hands and God forbid that we use the excuse of Christianity and love for God for building these walls. Be careful. I mean, I have to look for a balance of, you know, we, we have the responsibility of raising and training and protecting and guiding our children. But I want to be careful on the other hand that I don't insulate and isolate so much that the world in the earth that we live never sees us. They never encounter us. And so they see nothing of salt and light. It's a, it's a serious balancing act, is it not? I homeschool. We homeschool because we value the hearts and the lives of our children. But there's a world out there that needs to see what godly families look like. So be wise here. It's the duty of the Christian community to extend helping hands to those in need. It's consistent with a love for God and a love for His law and for His Word. And say, well, I don't know anybody I can help. Let me tell you, if you want to know somebody help, just come here one week and mind the phone. Or give me your phone number and I'll direct them to you. <laughs> Four to five times every week in this church office. And there's a lot of times that the, I'm not here and I, the answer machine gets nothing but the, the beep, beep, beep. They didn't leave a message. <laughs> People asking for help. People need help. You know, and I have to be careful. Um, I'm lucky, you know, we don't have a lot of the resources to help, but... You know, there are people that, you know, they know the business. And they know you can go from church to church. They're the scam. I know it's out there. But you got to be careful. But, you know, you can become, you can so, become so suspicious of everyone that you never help anyone. And sometimes, out of love for Christ, maybe it's worth that we get used and burned. But at least our heart was, I, I wanted to help. I may have been deceived. I may have been naive. I may have been fooled. 
But my heart was I wanted to help somebody who had needs. Look for avenues. You know, you don't have what I have here in the church with the phone and people calling the church. They get look in the phone book and they see our ad and I guess it must look like we're a big church so they call us all the time. And, and I just most of the time just say we, we can't do that. We just don't have the, the resources nor the, the channels at this point to do that. But look for avenues in your own personal world. You know, avenues to, to reach out people who need help. And it may not be just people needing money, although that's a lot of people who need help with electric bills. But some people just need a companion. Need somebody to talk to. You know, we have within our own ranks, Miss Faye Watts at the at Broadmoor, that she can't get out and come and, you know, encourage you. There's an opportunity to, to be a helping hand. She just likes people to come and visit her. But to look for avenues as, as a church or as families and as individuals to reach out for those in, the, in need. If you can't find people in need, I don't know what in the world you're looking at. It's everywhere. It's not hard. But to be willing to be the helping hands, that's the, that's the responsibility. It's the duty of God's people. It is the natural expression of a genuine love for God. Is that you love your fellow man. You care about them. You're concerned. And if you can, you help. Sometimes within the, even within the, the, the confines of the church, the church family, to help one another. And I appreciate the spirit of, of grace and concern and generosity I see in our body here. But sometimes it's outside these walls. It's to other people. The virtue of having helping hands. The second virtue we see here that Christ commends or commands and we are to pursue is that of a humble heart. Verses 7 through 11. It says here in verse 7, kind of introducing this section, he says, He began speaking a parable to the invited guest because he saw something. He noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. You know, at mealtime, evidently, this has been the gathering here, and these gatherings in this, this type of a setting in, in, in the first century, we've talked about before, these. It wasn't unusual these these meals even were somewhat of a of a semi public gathering. People would kind of come in and maybe walk around. You had the man with dropsy. We don't know why he was there. Somebody some suspect that he was planted there by the Pharisees. Don't have any reason to believe that. But even the woman who came, we considered earlier the woman who came and Jesus uh, met with her. That she came into this meal. These things were kind of semi public, and people could walk in. But they would come and they would sit down at this table. And Jesus noticed something. It's time to advance to the to the meal. They start, he starts looking at how they're sitting. I, and it's almost comical when you think about it, isn't it? Here you have these grown men kind of jockeying for positions at the places at the table that speak well of them. And it was just in their day they had places that this is the place of honor. This is the place for the ones of, of highest rank or prestige. This is where they sit. And some have visualized the table as like being a, a big, like a big horseshoe. A table across here and then two more to the side. And the places of honor would be on the ends here. So, you know, you picked out the places that you 
wanted to get, and you know, people kind of wander now before it's mealtime, and get you to imagine visiting and talking one another, but at the same time kind of edging themselves closer and closer to the seat that they want to sit in when it's time to sit down, and or as they, in their case, they reclined at the table. But getting to their place, picking out what they think, and Jesus sees them picking out the places of honor. You know, everybody's got their own idea that they're the most honored guest at this gathering here. And so Jesus, in response to them, tells a parable. And this parable He gives to us, it's another form that we see the parable are given to us. Sometimes there are stories. This is almost a complete exact parallel. Of course, He gives the setting here of a wedding feast. He's not at a wedding feast, but He gives in verse 8. When you are invited to, a, let's speak hypothetically here, you're invited to a wedding feast, <laughs> and you can make application with this meal that you're sitting at right now. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. In other words, don't go and assume this is where I ought to be. Don't look for the place that says to everybody else, I'm someone of some importance. And the place that but you say to your own self, I'm someone of some importance. He says, don't take that place. Don't take the place of honor. Don't come in and seat yourself and say, I want that very best. You know, where do you go when you come in, guys? You go to a place, you know, I've been to seminars and things. Some people are front row people. They go and they want to go sit around in the front row. Some people are kind of, kind of the back row people. I, can, I like to be in the back. I can get out quick, you know, and I'm kind of in the middle of the thing. I like to be somewhere in the middle. You know, I've been in situations where we'd go to something like a mill and and have tables and say, where are you going to sit? You want to sit close? You want to sit far? Or, you know, we'll kind of sit somewhere in the middle. Don't want to make too much of ourselves. Don't want to make too little of ourselves. Somewhere in the middle. Jesus says, do not take the place of honor. And here's the reason. Someone that's more distinguished than you, they might have been invited by Him. And then He who invited you both will have to come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. The picture is something like this. You come in, prime seats available, he takes it. And then it starts filling in behind him. But then, later, a more distinguished guest comes in, and the host says... This guest should sit here where you are. Would you mind moving? And instead of going down the pecking order, everybody scooting over one, it didn't work that way. You get up and the only place that's left is the, is the low seat. The place that you would never pick. The, the seat of least prestige. Jesus, He turns... He turns their, head, turns their thinking on its head, doesn't he? He does that a lot. All of a sudden, what they think, you know, you come in, you got to jockey around, and you get the best place. Jesus says, no, you don't do that. He says in verse 10, when you are invited, you go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. So here's the picture. You come in, you see the place that's the lowest. You take that place. Incidentally, for here at church, the low places, those are these up front. <laughs> In case you're wondering, I just want to clear that for you here. 
He says, you go and, and you, take, you take the low place. So that when the host comes and they see you, and he says to you, friend, you shouldn't be down here. Come on up to up here. And then what happens? You're, you're honored before everyone at the table there. Well, boy, look at this. He gets to move up here. So exhorts them to take that last place, the one that no one wants. So what's he doing here? Is he giving just a lesson in table manners? This is the way you should act in public? Or is there more to it? Well, I think that's parable. You understand that the parable is it expounds a, a spiritual principle. The immediate idea, the Pharisees themselves could grasp it. The immediate idea of this parable would be just on our earth level would be, hey, you know, you do that. You save face. You don't run the risk of being up here and being scooted down. So you can really save face if you do this. This thing that Jesus said, hey, it's a pretty good idea. On the other hand, you can really be honored if you take the low place and be scooted up. So they can understand that even though they would not practice it. Even though they would be one of those things that they would probably leave and say, you know, this sounds good in theory, but i got a feeling if I take that low seat, I'm going to get stuck there, so forget it. They're not going to do it. But they could understand just on a on an earthly level the immediate idea of how this would pan out. Yeah, save yourself the risk of embarrassment and also give yourself the possibility of being honored. That sounds pretty good to them, doesn't it? But there's a spiritual principle here, and that is this. The spiritual principle is in relation to God. The spiritual principle is you think highly of yourself before God. You exalt yourself before God and you will be humbled and disgraced and shamed. But if you see yourself humbly before God, then you are exalted. You are honored as a son. Now, probably your thinking, and I think their thinking is pretty clear, is what has what I've got to do on a human level got to do with me and God on a spiritual level? I mean, it's one thing for me to be humble before God. But to be humble before men, that's another thing. I don't quite see the, the connection here. They didn't see it either. And their thinking was, this has very little to do with how I view myself before God. This pecking order around the table. But Jesus' counter is this. That pride and arrogance among men is evidence of the same spirit and of the same attitude toward God. See, genuine humility before God is demonstrated among men. Because one who is truly humbled before God He recognizes that even among men, he's not anything great either. And he's willing to acknowledge that. The prerequisite for this, though, 
the prerequisite for this spirit is grace in the heart. In other words, you must be truly converted. Now, you see, this idea shouldn't be a new idea. It shouldn't have been new to the Pharisees. In fact, they probably knew some of the references we're going to glance at. Psalm chapter 18, Psalm 18, excuse me. Psalm 18, verse 27. Just go ahead and turn there. Psalm 18, verse 27. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. In the same verses, next second, Samuel chapter 2, verse 28. Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, over here where we have these moral virtues and their contrary vices. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. In Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Then Psalm, let's go back to Psalm 138. One thirty eight, verse six. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. You say, yeah, I see all that, but it doesn't talk about haughtiness or pride before God or for man. It just says haughtiness in general. That's my point. Spirit of humility. A humble heart is humbled before God as well as before me because it's a, it's a virtue that permeates all of our being. It permeates all of our relationships that we've, if we've been humble before God, if we've recognized that before Him that we're guilty and that we're vile, we're not going to be exalting ourselves before men. It's just inconsistent. We don't do that. And then we see the application of this principle and throughout the New Testament. Look in, in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Then look down that same chapter, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. In other words, you honor your brother over yourself. Verse 16, same chapter. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. I mean, Paul understands this is the application of, of the virtue of humility toward God. It's humility toward your fellow man. Look into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter four, verse six. 
Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos. You know that the problem was they were exalting one leader over another. Some say I'm Apollos. Some say I'm a Paul. Some say I'm of Cephas. Then they were the really spiritual elitists. We're of Christ. Doesn't that sound great? We're of Christ. And he's answering that. He says, listen, I've, these things, brethren, I've figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in, in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So in other words, I'm a, we follow Apollo, so we're better than you which is the spirit that was going on there in, the, in that context. There's no place for the spirit of arrogance of one against another brother in Christ. And then certainly the clearest in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Here it is. Here it is, folks. With humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Listen, he doesn't say here, with humility of mind, humble yourself before God. James says that. He says, with humility of mind, you humble yourself, you regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's the attitude that's to prevail within the people of God, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This virtue of having a humble heart. It's not just humility toward God. It's humility toward God, but also toward my brothers and sisters in Christ. So we see the the exact contradiction of that in the Pharisees here as they're they're exalting themselves. And Jesus says, take the low place. You know, and perhaps He is even somewhat in this parable, somewhat tongue-in-cheek appealing to them. You know, this makes sense to me. I saved face. I got the possibility of being honored. So you take the low place because it's honoring to God. And they wouldn't do that because they didn't see themselves as deserving of such a low place. Because they didn't rightly see themselves as they should see themselves before God. You find a humble man who's been truly humble before God. He is a humble man in his relationship with his fellow man. There's no exception to that. Find Moses. What's the description of Moses? The most humble man upon the face of the earth. And what do we see in the spirit of Moses? Yeah, he gets kind of cranky and upset a few times. But a spirit of humility. God says when the children of Israel have sinned, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. I'm going to make a people of you. A great people of you. Here's your chance, Moses. Hey, they will all be called Mosesites. Great people. All the descendants of Moses. What does he do? He humbles himself on behalf of the people. Goes before God. And for the sake of God's honor says, No, Lord, don't do that. Don't do that. He intercedes on behalf of the people. Appealing to God for the glory of His own name. What are they going to say of you, Lord? What What are the other nations going to say if you do that? They're going to say you couldn't take us in. You weren't strong enough. You could take us out of Egypt and in the wilderness. But it's all you could do. So the man who is humble before God, he doesn't have any difficulty in humbling himself before others. Let me ask you, do you have a grace-given spirit of humility? I'm not talking about pretending. I'm not talking about feigned humility. You can't just act humble, can you? You can't just act it. 
I mean, the words of James are you, you humble yourself before God. Humble yourself. And all he means by that is you consider <clears throat> the truth of who God is. You consider the truth of who you are. And you take your place accordingly. And it's a place of humility and brokenness before God. And if we've been humble before God, listen, you've got nothing to boast in. And you're not going to go around advancing yourself on horizontal relationships either. So do you have a grace-given spirit of humility? Now, in a group like this, there's going to be someone who's like, oh man, he's got me. Pride is my downfall. I must not be converted. You may not be. You know, I'm not going to try to tell you that you are. But is there even a desire? <laughs> you know, do you, you just have those glimmers? I mean, there's listen... There's sometimes I pride swell, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't have much to be proud about. Pride just comes and it swells up in the heart, doesn't it? Doesn't take much. And you think of what the sins that we committed, the root of them are pride. I'm just asking, do you have do you have that glimmer of humility? And when the and when pride wells up, that there's that quickness to, to slap it down because you realize this is absolutely absurd. Do you have that humble heart before God that manifests itself in your relationships with other people? Is the testimony of other people about you, that person always puts me before himself. That person always thinks of me before he thinks of himself or herself. Is that the testimony? That people have regarding us. The virtue of a humble heart. And finally, we see the virtue of a heavenly hope. Verses 12 through 14. Well, Jesus finishes the circle here. He's addressed those who have been invited. Now he turns to the host. I've got something to say to you too. Can't you just imagine the guy's been kind of sitting back and thinking, I'm glad I wasn't jockeying for these positions. I'm just sitting back. I'm the host here. I'm just watching. And Jesus, he turns to him. I've got something for you too. Verse 12. You give a luncheon or a dinner. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. And can't you just imagine as this Pharisee just looked around the table, he could say, these are my friends. These are my brothers. These are my relatives. These are my rich neighbors. That's all that's here around this table. It says, otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. In other words, you do a good deed of having someone, some guest in your home. Well, you've got these people that you know, they've got the means, and now they've got the, they're thinking, I've got to do this too. And they're going to be inviting you back to their home. So that's your repayment. You did a good deed. Here's the repayment for your deed. Someone does something kind for you. But he says in verse 13, when you give a reception... Invite the poor, the crippled, 
and the lame and the blind. And you will be blessed. How? Is it because the poor are going to invite you back? Is it because the crippled have the means to have you in to their home if they have a home? Is it because the lame and the blind are going to, are going to return the favor to you? Now he says in verse 14, you'll be blessed because they do not have the means to repay you. You're not going to get your reward from these kind of people as you would the friends and the brothers and the neighbors and the rich, the rich people. You're not going to get your reward because these people, they don't have the means for that. They cannot return the favor. But Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, before we get into the trap of thinking here that he's in any wise insinuating that you do good things to good people here and God's got a great reward for you, a works salvation, just forget it. That's not what he's saying here. God's no man's debtor. And what we do for good to other people are the things that we ought to do anyway. So don't expect a great reward because you do kind things for people. Your only hope of eternal reward is repentance toward God and faith in Christ. But when that's true of you, you live with an eye toward eternal things, not just toward earthly things. You live with the virtue of a heavenly hope. Looking beyond what gains you may get upon this earth. Looking beyond doing something kind for someone here so they'll return the favor and do something kind for you. But realize that you give yourself sacrificially to those who need help, whom you can demonstrate the grace of God, the love of Christ to you. And the only reward you receive is something you're not going to get in this life. It's yet to come. But let me tell you something. According to what he says here, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Listen. You're going to be repaid. You're going to be honored. You're going to be recognized when it matters the most. That's when you stand before God. That's the people of God. That's the people of God who live with a heavenly hope so that we we can live and we can minister in light of heaven. It's a pretty good return for a pretty small investment, isn't it? It's a pretty good return. If it's for earthly gain, if it's for earthly return, that we live, we will always be measuring the cost, always calculating and ministering very little, if any at all. And Jesus said here in verse 12, you listen, you live for the things of earth, you're going to get it, but verse 12, that's your repayment. You get it. You invest in things of this earth, 
an earthly realm of thinking, earthly priorities, you invest yourself for those types of things, those type of returns, you'll get it. But that's all you'll get. Very similar to what he says in Matthew chapter 6. You've got their reward. These people who pray to be praised by men, they'll be praised by men, and that's all they'll be praised by. They've got their reward. Our sights are on heaven. Our sights on the reality that we're, we're going to be with Christ. We're going to be rewarded by Christ Himself. We are going to have the reward of Christ Himself as we've longed to see Him, as we've longed to know Him. We can give freely. To give freely. We're not living. We don't minister. We don't minister with the idea of calculating, am I going to get a return on this thing? He may not. But not living for earthly things. As you can imagine, this, this all would have sounded pretty strange, pretty foreign to the ears of the Pharisees sitting there at that table. Seems strange to their thinking because they knew nothing of grace. But folks, if this, if, if the Spirit of God is within us, and we are truly born again by the Spirit of God, these are normal virtues. The virtues of having those helping hands, of, of ministering to those who have need, of having a humble heart, of taking that low place, of seeing ourselves as as being in the low place and regarding our brothers and sisters in Christ as more important <clears throat> than ourselves and, and living and acting and ministering with a heavenly hope, not other than the hopes of what I hope to get back here, but knowing that I will be paid far more than I've invested when I stand before Christ. When it really matters. That's the evidence of grace. This isn't profound. This is Grace. This is Christian living as it ought to be lived. And may we pursue these virtues, admitting our failures and admitting, I see these slightly at times in me. Oh God, that they would increase. That there would be an increase of my willingness and desire to, to help. An increase of, my, of humility within me. It's interesting that verse there in Philippians he says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. This is the mind of Christ. He was humble. And there'll be an increase of that heavenly hope that we can that we can we can minister with open hands. I may not get it back, but I've got something far greater than what I'm giving when I stand before God. That's the promise. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, once again, we, we see the, the calling and the expectation always exceeds our experience. Lord, we long for these things. Any child of God would. Lord, we long for an increase of Your grace in our hearts so that we're not always 
calculating before we minister. But I pray that you would deepen your work in our hearts for your namesake and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen.